definitely. So Luke chapter 7 is where we're going to be, and it'll be on the screen as well. If you're not sure where Luke is, it's uh, one of the Gospels that begin the New Testament, kind of four-fifths of your way through the Bible. So as I say, Luke chapter 7, and we're going to meet somebody else who's about to have their first and life-changing encounter with Jesus. Verse 1, after he, that's Jesus, had finished all his sayings in the hearing of the people, he entered Capernaum. Now, a centurion had a servant who was sick and at the point of death, who was highly valued by him. When the centurion heard about Jesus, he sent, him to, he sent to him elders of the Jews, asking him to come and heal his servant. And when they came to Jesus, they pleaded with him earnestly, saying, He is worthy to have you do this for him, for he loves our nation, and he is the one who built us our synagogue. And Jesus went with them. When he was not far from the house, the centurion sent friends, saying to him, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you, but say the word and let my servant be healed. For I too am a man set under authority with soldiers under me, and and I say to one, go, and he goes, to another, come, and he comes, and to my servant, do this, and he does it. When Jesus heard these things, he marveled at him, and turning to the crowd that followed him, said, I tell you, not even in Israel have I found such faith. And when those who had been sent returned to the house, they found the servant well. So verse 9 tells us that Jesus marveled at the centurion's faith. Marveled. Other translations uh, put it like this. Jesus was amazed at the centurion's faith. When I was studying for this, I discovered that only twice in all of the Gospels does it ever say that Jesus was amazed by anything or anyone. So it's quite a remarkable description to say that he was amazed by what he experienced. So what is it? What is it that surprises him so much? Well, it's partly because Jesus is dealing for the first time really so far, not with a Jewish person. He's dealing with a Roman centurion. And of course, the Roman centurion represents the Roman occupation of Judea and the oppression of the Jewish people. So it's not necessarily who you'd expect to be expressing great faith in Jesus, who is known as a Jewish prophet, teacher, miracle worker thus far. But even more than that, what causes Jesus to marvel, I think, what really amazes him is not just the centurion being a centurion, but it's the confidence that the centurion places in the authority of Jesus. I think that's what we learn from this passage. That's what what I want us to hear from this passage this morning. The big idea being this, that an encounter with Jesus is for anyone who trusts in his authority. Anyone who has faith in Jesus' authority which is why I was encouraged to hear what Anna was bringing just now in terms of the authority of Jesus, the nature of him. He's not only meek and mild, he carries enormous authority. So I want to unpack these two kind of concepts, the nature of authority and the nature of faith, because they're both kind of difficult concepts to an extent. And then thirdly, I want to ask us whether, whether we're willing to take a step of faith in the authority of Jesus either for the first time or for a fresh time. That's what we're going to do this morning. So, number one, authority. I guess the word authority can cause um, quite different reactions in different people. Our view of authority is now perhaps complex. Is that the best way to describe how we view authority these days? We view it, I think, with a certain degree of complexity. 
I think we're increasingly nervous about authority these days. Just some examples that spring to mind. You think about the number, the proliferation of media outlets these days, the way the internet has totally revolutionized how we can receive news and and facts and so on. 24-hour news means that we need exciting, stimulating news all the time. Fake news would seem to be the phrase of the moment on both sides of the pond. Suggestions that the government or governments are more or less involved in uh, in media and in information and so on. I think many of us feel it's increasingly hard to know whether what we're reading is is true, whether it carries authority. And then on a different note, if in the the modern Western world, we've begun to view over the last, I guess, kind of post Enlightenment, really, we've begun to view structures of authority with increasing nervousness. I would say either because over the last couple hundred years people have seen authority structures just not working and not causing human flourishing as they're supposed to do. And so we've become quite disillusioned by authority, certainly political authority, in this particular time and moment in history. And then thinking about the way which, I guess, postmodernism or post-postmodernism has affected how we, how we think, um, the idea is that everything is kind of fluid, Every concept is up for grabs to an extent. There are no definitive truths. I guess that's what postmodernism would try and claim. There's no definitive truth. It's kind of up to the individual to decide what is authoritative for them, given how they feel or what their worldview is at that moment. So there's a suspicion, a nervousness about authority and authority structures. And yet, on the other hand, I think a good part of us does, does want authority, certainly want authority that can cause human flourishing. And this is just another example for me, and it's only my own personal example this week, and you might not agree. I'm not here to make political statements, so it's just an example. But I look at the decision that um, the government has made to, to close what's known as the Dubs transfer scheme. I don't know if that's cropped up on your particular news feed, uh, as it were, this week. And I look at that closure of that scheme to bring in uh, more Syrian refugee children into this home, and it kind of makes me think that's an example of where authority is the only answer. Without authority, that situation is not going to turn itself around. So if you're not familiar with what's going on, um, the government announced this week that the UK will only receive about 350 uh, Syrian refugee children, as opposed to the 3,000 that had been kind of agreed under Lord Dubbs's recommendation uh, before we... Uh, and that's the decision, I think, that seems to have been made. And the idea was 3,000 would be something a- a- appropriating our fair share, given the extraordinary crisis taking place, but that the government has chosen to shut the door at about 350. And, and, it, and kind of when I look at that, it just makes me think, well, that's an example where I can do what I've done, and lots of church leaders have signed petitions and so forth, and you can sign petitions and you can campaign, but that only gets so far. Ultimately, authority needs to step in and make a decision and take responsibility for it, and then, I personally would argue, human flourishing begins to come as a result. All I'm saying is, as much as we are suspicious of authority... I think there is a part of us that also um, wants it, that also knows that we need it, that we don't want anarchy. So we know that flourishing, human flourishing, is in some ways dependent upon authority as much as we are, you know, suspicious of it to an extent. Now, for the Roman centurion, I don't think he has quite a... 21st century postmodern convoluted view of authority. In fact, authority is the lens through which he sees life. That's how the authority views the world. Look at what he says in in verse 8. He says, For I too am a man set under authority, 
with soldiers under me. And I say to one, go, and he goes. And to another, come, and he comes. And to my servant, do this, and he does it. So this is a guy whose life is based around authority, structures. His whole job as a Roman centurion was to, uh, I guess, represent and deploy the might of Rome to uh, maintain Roman occupation and to prevent any uh, resistance from the Jewish people to occupation. That's what his life is geared around. And indeed, many of those Roman soldiers, you probably know, would often use their authority pretty brutally, pretty harshly, pretty violently to maintain Roman occupation. At the same time, although that's the centurion's world in some ways, he does seem to be an exception to the violent, harsh, brutal Romans that we often hear about. It seems that he is held in very high regard by the Jewish people, including their leaders. They report in verse 4 and 5 that he's a kind man and a noble man and that he respects their customs and that he's even helped to fund their temple. We also find out that he cares about his servants. We also see that he's pretty humble before uh, Jesus comes towards him. So he's quite a different type of, certainly stereotypical, Roman centurion. But at the same time, he is a Roman centurion. Okay? He didn't get to that position by just being a really nice bloke. He would have been a tough guy. He would have been battle-scarred, maybe even literally. He would have been able to command the respect and instant obedience of pretty tough, brutal, hard Roman soldiers. I need to work out a way of my notes not, not sticking. Um, you know, who knows how many operational tours he had been on and what he'd seen and what he'd had to do. This is not a man to be messed with. And so with this centurion, you kind of have there's kind of two parts to him. There's this strength that he must have to wield the authority that he has for the reasons that he must do so. And there's also this kind of kindness, this humility, this nobility that seems to be in him as well. And that seems to be the lens through which he perceives what Jesus is like. Because he knows, or he suspects, that authority that is used with strength and with power, and that has kindness and humility and grace and wisdom to it, he knows, or he kind of knows, that that kind of authority means that at least the humans around him flourish. So when he, says, so when he sees Jesus, he's kind of like, Okay, on the one hand, I know that proper authority needs strength. It needs power. I know that's how it works. Because he says, when I give commands, people do it. So I know that authority has to carry strength and power. But he sees Jesus and goes, well, hang on a minute. I might tell people to do some stuff and they do it. But you, you command sickness to go and evil to go. And it, and it does. Okay, so that's a different league of power authority. And then he also, I think, has this sense of, well... I, 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 centurion, do try and use my authority to a degree, humbly, wisely, kindly. We can assume that he's created, if you want to call it, human flourishing to an extent. By the way that he's uh, acted towards the Jewish people, he's obviously keeping the peace with them. Uh, He's able to control his soldiers from threatening them, presumably, and he's certainly making sure that they can worship. So his kindness is making sure that there's a degree of, if you like, partial peace and flourishing. So he knows that, and then he sees Jesus and says, well, I might be able to do a bit with my kind authority, but you, you use your authority not just to kind of create some temporary peace, but you use it to heal people. Use it to set people free. Use it to include the oppressed and the marginalized. You can use your authority to forgive sin, to even make it possible to know the one true God. Like That is also a different league of authority. 
So in Jesus' power, he sees something that's a different league. And in Jesus' kindness and humility, he sees something of a different league. And that authority blend that comes together makes him say, basically, I'll put my faith and trust in that kind of authority. Now, he doesn't, he doesn't know much, I don't think. He seems to be aware of the nature of the Jewish religion and so forth, but he's not part of the people of God at that point. He doesn't believe in the God of the Bible. At least he doesn't worship him. He would have been considered to be an enemy, in fact, for many, for many people. But I guess because he's desperate, which is a bit of a theme. If you notice these encounters, there's a certain desperation that leads people to humble themselves. Because of those things and because of what he sees in Jesus, what he sees in Jesus, those things lead him to encounter Jesus. And his servant is healed and he has this life-changing experience. So an encounter with Jesus is for anyone who will trust in his authority. So what about trust? What about faith? Because that's a, sometimes a tricky concept as well. Faith can cause us challenges. You know, is faith just something that religious people have acquired because they don't take enough care over the evidence and the reasons? I was having that same chat with someone this week. The kind of re- he was representing what is an often underlying view or belief in our culture that you can be a person of, of faith but you can't be a person of reason and evidence. Like there are people who take reason and evidence seriously, and they're over here, and there are people of faith, and they're different types of people. But we were kind of discussing, really, that, that faith is simply what you trust in, and everyone is doing that all of the time, according to what they perceive. Faith is a, is a verb. Faith is a doing word. It's not a noun. It's not a thing that you have. It's something that you do. It's what you do when you decided to tr- trust something. And we're doing all of that all the time. You are doing that all now as you sit on a chair. And you wouldn't have gone through this process out loud, but something in your brain would have happened when you chose to sit down on that chair along the lines of, is this thing real? Or is it a figment of my imagination? Am I living in some kind of matrix where nothing is quite what it seems? Is it real? You'd have asked, does it have integrity? In the sense that, can it bear my weight? I'm not saying you actually would have asked all these questions out loud, but your brain goes through some kind of process before you sit on the chair. Do I trust it? Is basically what you would have subconsciously said before you sat on it. If I do trust it, I will act on that and sit on it. That's faith. So my faith is not the chair. My faith is the decision to sit on it based upon the trust that I have in it, based upon the evidence and the questions that I ask myself. And similarly, my faith in Jesus is not That's not the object. My faith is not the object. Jesus Christ is the object. He is the object of my faith. He's what I trust in. And many of us would say, well, there is evidence for that and reasons for that based on the evidence of the resurrection. That I'll talk about that last term before Christmas. And based on the experience of living by the Bible. Even when it clashes sometimes with how I might feel. And based on the experience of being empowered and changed by the Holy Spirit, those things give me the confidence to say I trust in Jesus and I trust in his authority. Authority that he uses with power and authority that he uses for the good of humanity. And we're all trusting in sources of authority all of the time. So if you were at home, this might not be the case for you, but for many of us, if we needed to check the clock in our living room and make sure that it had the right time, what would we do? Many of us would go to our iPhones, yeah, check the time on here, and then probably set the clock by what was on here. 
because we have a significant trust. We've built up significant trust in the authority of Apple. Not because we prove their authority to be empirically true in a laboratory, but because on the basis of what we've seen and what we've experienced, we have sufficient faith in their authority to trust it and do something about it. All that to say, the centurion trusted, he placed his faith in the authority of Jesus on based on what he saw. He did something about it. He even called him Lord. I don't know if you saw that. Commentators disagree a bit about why he used that word Lord, but that's a significant expression of trust in authority for the centurion to call Jesus Lord. So how do you start trusting or grow in trusting in the authority of Jesus? How do you start trusting or how do you grow in trust in the authority of Jesus? I think whether it's for the first time or for a fresh time, the answer's the same. The answer is two keys are humility and confidence. Firstly, humility. The Jewish leaders seem to get this wrong. They, they don't have that humility, I don't think, because they assume, if you saw it in the passage, they assume that Jesus will come and heal the centurion's servant based on the fact that the centurion's a good man. And if you notice that, they, they say in verse 4, he's worthy to have you do this for him. They say he's noble, he's generous, he's kind, he's good. I guess he's, he's kind of like a lot of Kingston people in a way, the centurion. He, he gives the charitable causes, he is tolerant of other religions, he looks after his staff well, he's a good guy. And Jesus doesn't dismiss that. He honors it, in fact. He, he want, he's in, he engages with it, he's intrigued by it. But the difference is, that the religious leaders think that this, this stuff is what earns the centurion an encounter with Jesus. They think his moral worthiness is what means that God will surely bless him. But interestingly, the centurion, tough Roman soldier, doesn't think that at all. He sends a second delegation to meet Jesus before he gets to his house in verse 6 and says, Lord, Lord, do not trouble yourself, for I am not worthy to have you come under my roof. Therefore, I did not presume to come to you. He's a humble man. And I, I don't know exactly why. Through whatever means, maybe it's just instinctive. Something in him has realized that all of his moral goodness and his competency and his impressive credentials, good things though they are, those things don't earn him a life-changing encounter with Jesus. And then the second key, along with humility, is confidence. Because the centurion is not just humble. He doesn't only have zero confidence in himself and then just stop there. He has great confidence in Jesus. In fact, he has such supreme confidence in the authority of Jesus that Jesus marvels. I, God is amazed for a moment. It's like God is almost left speechless for a moment. Such is the supreme confidence that this man has in the authority of Jesus. He knows that his trust is not in himself, even though he's a highly competent, honorable man. He knows that when it comes to something like a dying person being healed, that requires a different league of authority. He's able to bring about some degree of, of peace, fulfillment amongst those he's responsible for. But when it comes to something that points to true human wholeness and healing and peace, he knows that that's, that's not for me. I've, I've come to the end of myself when it comes to that kind of flourishing. I can't do that. So he's got humility when it comes to himself and supreme confidence in Jesus. He's seen something in Jesus. 
That's what this series is about. It's trying to help us to see Jesus afresh or for the first time. Not necessarily to see Christian life necessarily, but to see the nature of Jesus, to encounter him. And in this sense, to get confidence in his authority as a result. And I guess the centurion, in his own way, has kind of got the gospel. He's kind of understood the gospel in a way that the religious people haven't. Because the gospel humbles you to your core. You haven't understood the gospel if it hasn't humbled you right to your knees. Because the gospel tells you that you need saving. It's a humbling thing to be told. It tells you that even your best efforts don't merit the acceptance and approval and love of God. The gospel tells you that you are more sinful than you would dare to admit to the person closest to you. That's humbling. And the gospel makes you supremely confident. It tells you that you are loved. It tells you that once you believe in the person and accomplishments of Christ, then nothing can ever, ever separate you from the love of God. That engenders confidence. It it tells you that you will only ever from now into eternity know supreme, faithful, unconditional love and acceptance forever. That should engender confidence in us when we know we're loved like that and yet we also know I needed saving because I was so far from God. Humility and confidence. That's the same. It's how you come to trust in Jesus for the first time. That's how you grow in trusting Jesus for the first time. Humble as regards our own ability to sort things out and supremely confident in his authority. Because Christians also can often feel like we lack faith, don't we? Can often feel like we lack faith. We can feel like, well, yeah, I, I have faith in the sense that I believe in Jesus. But as to whether I really trust him and his authority for everything, that's a bit different sometimes. As to whether he is Lord over all of my life, that can be a bit different. Is he, is he in full authority? I believe in Jesus and what he, who he is and what he's done, but whether he's in full authority over my life, that can be a different set of questions sometimes. Does he have authority? Is he Lord over my finances and my marriage, my desire for marriage, my family, my career, my school and university studies? My deepest hopes and prayers. Is he Lord over those things? Does he have full authority? Something I've been asking myself this week and trying to come to some conclusions. So I said said at the beginning that we would look at the nature of authority, the nature of faith, and then say, are we willing to take a step of faith, either for the first time or for a fresh time? Um, This is a, a painting by Holman Hunt. It's called Light of the World, um, and it was painted in 1853, 1854. And Holman Hunt painted it um, to represent uh, a verse in the Bible. I know all of you can't see it. I'm sorry, I haven't done a very good job, sorry, of putting it as, a, as big as it should be, but I hope you can make it out. Um, he wanted to represent Revelation 3.20 through the medium of art. And Revelation 3.20 says, Behold, this is Jesus speaking, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come into him and eat with him and he with me. Now, we know now that Jesus didn't look very much like that. He wasn't a, a white guy going around with a halo. He was a regular Middle Eastern guy, as a carpenter by trade. But within the cultural, artistic expression of the time, I think Hunt is, is uh, trying to convey something really beautiful. He's saying this is what an encounter with Jesus looks like. Jesus is at your door. 
He's always at your door, whether for the first time or for a fresh time. He doesn't force himself anyone. It's not what Jesus is like. But he does knock. He does invite. He does call us to an encounter with him, an encounter where we trust his authority. An encounter where through experiencing him, we know friendship with him. That's what this verse is inviting us into. And in, in first century Palestine, to come and eat with somebody, as many of you would know, was a very, very intimate, uh, precious experience. And Hunt's trying to say, that's what an encounter with Jesus looks like. Friendship with Jesus. And when you have those encounters, you begin to trust afresh, not just in his friendship, but also in his authority. You trust afresh that he is both friend and, as the centurion did, Lord. That he has full authority. That he's God. That to really follow Jesus means that he's in charge. And he gets to call the shots. Because he has authority. And if that notion of authority, of Jesus being in charge, of him calling the shots, if that jars with you because of whatever your experience probably of authority has been or how you view it, again, I just would say, look at how he uses it. That's what's so attractive the centurion to him. The fact that he has total power over sickness and death. And on the other hand, he uses his authority with total humility. Look how he uses it. He uses it to heal. He uses it to make whole. He uses it to bless. He uses it to serve, to restore. Apparently, um, when Holman, I don't know if this is a true story or not, but I've heard it's true. When Holman Hunt painted this painting, someone said to him, I think you made a mistake, Mr. Hunt. And he said, really? What would that, what would that mistake be? And the person said, well, you've, you've forgotten to include a handle. There's no handle on your door. Which there isn't, if you can see it close enough. And Holman Hunt said, no, no, that's not a mistake. The handle's on the inside. Jesus doesn't, doesn't force us, doesn't force an encounter on us, either for the first time or for a fresh time. He invites us to open the door. He invites us to trust in his total authority and make him Lord of our life. So what does that mean for you um, this morning? Are you willing to open the door for the first time and encounter the authority of Jesus? Authority that means that at the same time he is staggeringly powerful and staggeringly gentle and humble. That is authority you can trust. Look at this man. Look at the way he uses his authority. You can trust a God like that. A God that uses authority to ultimately die for humanity is a God you can trust. And if you open the door for the first time, you can encounter him and his authority, which is both powerful and humble for the first time. What about those of us who are Christians? Are you going to open the door for a fresh time? To say, Jesus, I trust you as Lord. Not as my advisor or my kindly benefactor, but as Lord. Just one example. Maybe you're yet to be baptized as a follower of Christ. You know, one of the reasons, only one, one of the reasons of being baptized as a believer, as a follower of Christ, is because it is a declaration of saying, Jesus is Lord of my life. That's part of baptism. It's a person saying publicly, Jesus is Lord of my life. He gets to call the shots now, he has authority. That's why we hold baptism in high regard. This is a key moment in a uh, Christian's life to say, I trust him. I'm living for him now. Our next service is on May the 14th. We've got 
couple of people have already signed up, which is great. And if you're thinking about that, then do chat to me afterwards or your life group leader, and we'd love to chat that through with you. Or you might say, ah, I've done all that. I'm Christian, been baptized, following Jesus. I, I do say he's Lord. I believe that. I'm just not sure if I've let his authority into every part of my life. I'm not sure if I'm trusting in his complete authority. I think that's where I've been this week, personally. And the question to myself and the question to you, I guess, is, is what's holding you back? What's holding you back from, from opening the door um, and allowing Jesus to have full authority over all of our life? And remember, it's not the strength of your trust. It's not the strength of your faith that matters. It's the object of your faith. The object being Jesus. And when you look at him, when you encounter him, when you see him for his power and his beauty, I think this is a God you can trust. This is authority that is used in a way that you can trust. You know, maybe you'd say, well, I mean, you could, can we just flip back to the painting, actually, Adam? Is that right? Just to help me in these last few moments. You know, maybe you'd say, well, I feel like, I, I feel like the door's ajar. <laughs> I'm kind of speaking with Jesus through the, through, the, through the ajar door, relating to him that way, but in terms of opening the door and inviting him in to be with me and to eat with me and to have full authority over me, that's maybe not where I'm at so far. Maybe you've, you're a Christian and you've been burnt a little bit, and so the door's just started to be closed, and it's like a conversation taking place. You kind of come to an arrangement with Jesus. He's there, you're here, there's kind of a door, and it's ajar, and you relate, but he's not fully in, or... You could put it a different way. There's a number of doors into your life. They all relate to different aspects of your life. And most of them are open, wide open. And he has access and authority and love and friendship. But there's just one or two doors. And those ones, are, they're a bit more shut. He doesn't quite get access into those areas. Don't try harder to trust him. Just look at him. Look at him and the way that he uses authority extraordinary power to make human beings whole again at the cost of himself done so with this off the scale, off the chart kindness and humility and grace, that's the God that you can trust for the first time or for a fresh time Ross, could you guys come and join us and help us to uh, respond um Yeah, it's kind of up to you guys how you want to how you want to respond. Um, we're learning how to meet in here and how to do prayer and so on. It's not straightforward, but we we found that it was okay to have a prayer team or the prayer team over by the other side of the stairs. It's, it's a bit more private and there's comfy chairs and that and so on. My experience is that sometimes when you want to take a step of trust for the first time or for a fresh time, it's really helpful to have someone with you. When you want to open the door for the first time or a fresh time, it's helpful to have someone who'll help that, help you do that. I guess it's what people who pray with you are there for, to help you open the door and let Jesus come and encounter you for a first time or for a fresh time. So the prayer team will be there as soon as you start worshipping and you can come and receive prayer from them. If anything at all, it might be that you want to just celebrate and thank God for what he's doing in your life and the prayer team would love to do that with you. Um, yeah, I guess it stands and I'll pray. Um, Lord Jesus, we thank you for the nature of your um, 
personhood and deity is that you, you're always there. You're always at the door. You're so kind like that. We could have slammed it shut many, many times and you would still be knocking, inviting, beckoning. That's amazing, Jesus. And so I simply pray in these next few moments that would you help us to know what it looks like for each one of us to open that door and invite you in and for you to have authority over our lives, trusting you that's for our good and it's for your glory. Help us to trust you, Jesus. Amen.